With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on this Monday here at the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, how collaboration within the industry is helping to fight disease in vineyards, and also why some say a change in mindset is a critical aspect of converting to organic production. But we start off with this from Brian German. Today we're talking almonds with BASF Tech Service Representative Jessica Samler. And on the topic of almond bloom, let's start out here with uh, what types of weather uh, can have an impact either positively or negatively on that uh, bloom timing. Yeah, so, you know, different weather conditions impact bloom. There's I, no such thing as kind of a perfect bloom weather, if you will, but um, certain conditions, of course, have more of an impact than others. So if we end up with a rainy winter that transitions into spring and goes into the bloom timing, that can definitely decrease pollination and can increase disease pressure. So rain is a big concern during bloom, but cold as well can be a problem. So if it's if it's just on the cooler side, that can extend the bloom. And we saw that last year. And uh, if it's too cold, though, if we get hard frost events, that will definitely kill blossoms. And so that reduces your yield. On the flip side, if it's too warm, we can see a shortened and compressed bloom, and that also reduces pollination. It reduces the bees' ability to get in there because they just have such a short window to get in there and and do their job. And now uh, speaking to those uh, colder temperatures, you noted kind of some of the impacts there, but what are maybe some of the short-term you've you've noted, but what are some long-term impacts on almond trees that can happen as a result of frost during bloom? Yeah, so like you said, the short-term impacts are killing the blossoms. Um, If you have a hard freeze that lasts for a while or just really cold temperatures, um, you could potentially even see some of those smaller limbs start to die back. And of course, all of that translates to yield loss. But when we talk about the longer-term impacts, any of those limbs dying, that can create a wound Uh, on the tree, and that is a perfect entry point for a lot of diseases. And then just the stress of going through those cold temperatures at the wrong time, that stress can potentially depress next year's crop for these trees. So it it can have far-reaching consequences beyond just the current season and the current harvest that we're looking at. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thank you, Brian. The Cotton Trust Protocol is setting a new standard in sustainable cotton production. To tell us more about it, here's Chuck Zimmerman. I'm at the Beltwide Cotton Conferences, and we just had a report on the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, and I have with me uh, Darren Abney. And first of all, Darren, tell us a little bit about yourself, because I understand uh, you are the new head guy. Thanks. Yeah, no, I'm excited to be here. I'm just about six months into the role now. Um, I live in Lubbock, Texas myself, so I have been surrounded with and working in cotton for many, many years. Uh, But my professional experience has really been working with retailers and brands on their sustainable sourcing strategies for the last 15 or so years. And I'm excited to come to the protocol because we're at an exciting point of uh, maturation where the organization is really growing. Um, We've established a three-year baseline now of operation, and there's a lot of exciting things happening. I was impressed with the uh, number of uh, companies that are taking part in this. 
Yeah, we work with the entire cotton supply chain. Um, so we take membership from growers all the way up to retailers and brands. Um, growers are participating. And we think the first year the protocol had just over 300 or so growers. Um, but as of this season, we're now over 970 growers participating in the program, which means we have roughly 1.7 million acres of cotton lint that are entering the program. Uh, but to your point, the retailers and brands that are participating in the program, we, we have 40 brands now that are signed up as members, not just to say that they support what's happening at the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, but to actively work with their supply chain to source the cotton, which is important for the growers because that's ultimately what's going to send the uh, demand signals down the supply chain. So things look like they're on a great track forward. What's sort of your outlook? Well, there's a lot of challenges ahead, but I think one of the things that's really positive is our participation with leading the Climate Smart grant. Uh, the Climate Smart Commodities is really looking at scaling regenerative practices by de-risking a lot of those practice changes for growers. Um, I know we just had a presentation from Dr. Chad Brewer to talk about the details behind that, but the momentum that that's creating in the market, I really feel like we're at that tipping point where the organization is growing. We've got the infrastructure now to be able to uh, address the challenges that we see from our supply chain partners. Um, and then ultimately, again, I think it comes back to the economic benefit for uh, the American cotton producer. So what does it take to grow this and, and do the kind of work you're doing? Yeah, the, well, the team, there's about 20 people now that are full-time committed to the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol um, across, uh, I would say, the U.S. And we have some, some people in Europe that also work for us to work with the market over there. But, yeah, the infrastructure is definitely something that we are focused on creating long-term success models and we have to do that by uh, engaging with our board of directors, engaging with the membership across the protocol to understand what their needs are because the market is evolving really quickly. Um, and if we are a you know, small and agile team, then I think we're positioned to be able to pivot and meet those needs um, in a way that I think is scalable for the U.S. cotton grower to participate. So kind of like when we leave here, what's next? Great question. What's next? Um, I, I think that what we're really focused on for 2024 and into the next three to five years is uh, creating a strategy that clearly articulates quantified goals and numbers to the market for what it is that we want to achieve for U.S. cotton growers uh, and the members of the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. We really need the Climate Smart grant to uh, scale in this next year and growers to adopt the level two practices. Um, and our team is committed to working with growers and, and different partners. Um, and I would say that's the next immediate model too, is uh, or, or the next immediate task is really creating a model where those large cotton players can partner with the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol to achieve their goals by using the systems that we've spent a lot of time and resources to create around traceability for the supply chain and all of the other aspects that make it work. Thank you very much, Darren. And here from the Beltwide Cotton Conferences, I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. In today's National Spotlight, more underserved small-scale and organic farmers will know more about crop insurance under a special USDA education program. Here's Gary Crawford with more. 
Farming is up there at the top of the list of financially risky businesses, what with the threat of weather and market disasters. And with that risk comes, of course, the importance of crop insurance. Marsha Bunger runs the USDA's Risk Management Agency. She says crop insurance is a way of life for many mainstream farmers. However, I still continue as I travel across the country to hear people that don't know about crop insurance. Or maybe there's some confusion about what it is. And so I think it's vital that we continue to provide means to be able to educate and inform everybody. To that end, USDA has just announced a $3 million grant program to help nonprofit groups, educators, and others to develop farmer training programs and events. Around record keeping, around training producers, what tools are available. For more information available, go online, search Risk Management Education Partnerships. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, part two of the conversation with Randy Spronk, a Minnesota crop and livestock producer and current chairman of the United States Meat Export Federation. Join us as we discuss the growth and impact of red meat exports across the U.S. livestock industry and USMEF strategy for export market diversification and expansion in 2024. You know, really, we all know that we're really trying to add value to that cutout, whether it be the beef, pork, or lamb. We're trying to take any, each and every one of those primal cuts and find the highest value of that cut, wherever it is in the world. And it changes from time to time. We want to talk about this coming year with USMEF. We want to talk about diversification. You know, uh, my career, my first initial uh, uh, trade trip was to Tokyo, Japan in 1999 with Governor Jesse Ventura. I actually visited the U.S. Meat Export Federation offices, saw U.S. product in the grocery store in 99, went back there in September here. And so you got to see the changes in the Japanese society, changes in our you know, production methodology and what we've got. At that time in 1999, Japan was our only export market. We didn't have anything else. But it's through free trade agreements. It's through lowering tariff barriers that all of a sudden we've got, you know, South Korea. We've got Mexico. I mean, I can't say enough things about started with uh, uh, um, NAFTA, now is U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, free trade agreement here. Those two countries, Mexico and Canada, they're a third of our exports. Just phenomenal growth that's happened here. Then we started looking south. We had to look at Latin America, Central America, South America. You roll up all those countries there, they could be another Mexico. So we still have more opportunities. We have more places that we can move. U.S. beef, pork, and lamb, we need free trade agreements. We need lower tariffs, and we need to eliminate non-tariff trade barriers. In other livestock news, the American Sheep Industry Association reports that regulations would revise standards for meat processors. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced a proposed regulation that would revise wastewater discharge standards for facilities that process meat and poultry products. Many of these facilities are located near communities with environmental justice concerns that have bodies of water impaired by nutrient pollution. The agency's proposal would leverage the latest pollution control technologies to cut the amount of nitrogen, phosphorus, and other pollutants discharged to the nation's waters by approximately 100 million pounds of pollutants per year, improving water quality for downstream communities and ecosystems. The Clean Water Act requires EPA to revise industry-wide wastewater treatment limits called Affluent Limitation Guidelines to keep pace with innovation and pollution control technology. The first ELGs for facilities that process meat and poultry products were issued in 1974, and the last revision was in 2024. 
ELGs are based on the performance of demonstrated wastewater treatment technologies, and they are intended to represent the greatest pollutant reductions that are economically achievable for an entire industry. As EPA announced in September 2021, preliminary effluent guideline program plan 15, the agency completed a detailed study of facilities that process meat and poultry products, leading to its decision to revise the existing affluent regulations for these facilities. The agency's proposal also seeks comment on more stringent ELGs for these facilities. EPA will be accepting public comment on the proposed regulation for 60 days upon its publication in the Federal Register. For Agnet West, I'm Will Jordan. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to get the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have our statewide agriculture news at your convenience. Just search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. The conversion of farmland from conventional to organic can be quite a process. Bianca Caprillion is the CEO and owner of Fruit World, a marketing and sales company growing and selling organic and conventional citrus, organic grapes, and other fruits. Caprillion said that one question they get asked a lot is what kind of challenges or issues they ran into converting over to organic. And some of the biggest challenges I think are just mindset. You know, it's, it's a different way of farming, non-organic and organic farming. But once you can wrap your head around, you know, this, it's not going to be the same program and you get, ex- I think, I really think it has to, you have to be excited about organics and believe in organics. And if you do, then there's no, the hurdles might be different than non-organic farming, but you're not going to have more hurdles. The International Fresh Produce Association highlighted 10 key impacts in 2023, emphasizing their commitment to improving consumer health, the produce and floral industries, and addressing environmental concerns. CEO of IFPA Kathy Burns emphasized the collective strength of the association, stating that together they achieved more than individual efforts. Achievements included advocating for produce prescriptions to enhance health and increase sales, addressing cyclospora as a public health threat, collaborating with the Delta USDA Regional Food Business Center to support underserved farmers, and urging a more effective leadership for the FDA. The association also admitted a second cohort to the Freshfield Catalyst Accelerator for Climate Smart Solutions, promoted climate smart practices through a USDA grant, and engaged in initiatives related to the U.S. Farm Bill, plastic packaging rules in Canada, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. The U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative are inviting applications for new members to join agricultural trade advisory committees. The committees offer advice to the administration on existing U.S. trade agreements, negotiation for new agreements, and other trade policy matters. Additionally, these six ag technical advisory committees focus on specific agricultural sectors, providing technical advice on international trade issues. These sectors include animal and animal products, fruits and vegetables, cotton, peanuts, and hemp. Applicants with expertise in U.S. ag and international trade experience are eligible for committee membership. Committee members serve four-year terms and represent diverse U.S. food and ag stakeholders. Members must be U.S. citizens, qualify for security clearance, and serve without compensation for time, travel, or expenses. Applications will be accepted through January 31st. Industry collaboration is a critical component of preventing the spread of red blotch disease in vineyards. 
Professor of Plant Pathology at Cornell University Mark Fuchs said the relationship between growers and nurseries has been improving over the past several years. This collaboration and openness and transparency in the way growers interact and sustain relations with their favorite nurseries and the way the nurseries are open to the growers indicating what the frequency of virus testing is, what virus testing is being done on which mother vines and so forth is absolutely the way to go to ensure that there is little red blotch introduced in newly established vineyards. And this very close openness has been very successful, continues to be successful, and absolutely needs to be entertained to the benefit of the whole industry. The California Department of Food and Agriculture's Office of Farm to Fork has allocated approximately $9 million in grants for 103 projects through the Healthy Refrigeration Grant Program. The initiative aims to support energy-efficient and environmentally friendly refrigeration and freezer equipment in corner stores, small businesses, and food donation programs situated in low-income or low-food access areas across the state. Recipients of the grants will utilize the new equipment to stock locally sourced fresh produce, nuts, eggs, meat, dairy products, and culturally appropriate minimally processed foods. Additionally, the program encourages grantees to foster relationships with local farmers and ranchers. CDFA Secretary Karen Ross highlighted the statewide impact of the program reaching from Humboldt County to San Diego and emphasized its role in enhancing food access in underserved communities. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Demand for organic cotton is growing in the United States. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. Demand for organic cotton in the U.S. is growing, but imports continue to fill the need because of a lack of domestic production. A new project led by Texas A&M AgriLife Research aims to turn the situation around by identifying the challenges and opportunities for U.S. organic cotton growers. The study, fostering sustainable organic cotton production in the U.S. through research and outreach on organic regenerative practices, is funded by $3.5 million of U.S. Department of Agriculture National Institute of Food and Agriculture grants. Researchers expect the study to help U.S. organic cotton producers determine how to improve yields, productivity, and sustainability in their existing fields and transition more acreage into organic production. Organizers say we want to understand what their production challenges are, how they are managing them, what works and what doesn't, and how their practices are impacting the soil and output long term. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back. Canada's grocery giants are divided over implementation of a code of conduct for that retail industry. Dennis Guy reports. A joint federal commission of agricultural and industry government departments wrapped up a second hearing in Ottawa shortly before the Christmas recess. The issue involves a code of conduct aimed at setting standards for how the country's large grocery chains deal with their food suppliers, which in turn will translate to consumer pricing. Last summer, Canada's major grocery chain CEOs were summoned to Ottawa to answer questions about how their companies including Loblaws, Walmart Canada, and Empire, among others, negotiate with their suppliers and their pricing practices and marketing fees. A second round of questions took place just last month. It's become clear that the two largest players, 
Loblaws and Walmart Canada are pushing back against the Code of Conduct. Walmart Canada issued a statement saying that inflation-driven prices are stabilizing in Canada and that implementation of such a code would only act to raise food prices for Canadians. Loblaws CEO Galen Weston's statement echoed Walmart Canada. Food prices are definitely stabilizing, but we are concerned that the Grocery Code of Conduct could slow down this momentum. When I was here with you six months ago, I voiced my support for a fair, balanced code. I also cautioned that a one-sided code that removes a retailer's ability to hold vendors accountable to their commitments would risk higher prices. When you get into the details, there is significant risk of higher prices and empty shelves. Conversely, Atlantic Canada-based Empire is urging the federal government to implement a grocery code of conduct. Sylvain Charlebois, an agri-food industry supply chain analyst based at Dalhousie University in Halifax, says yes, food price inflation is cooling off. He went on to say the grocery industry itself is also putting downward pressure on food prices these days because consumer loyalties and shopping habits have changed in the last couple of years. Food prices are stabilizing, but we could see some price wars in this country. In the last 18 months, Canadians have not been loyal at all to anything not a store not a brand so they're shopping around they're hunting for bargains and grocers in 2024 will want you back in their stores and to do that they'll have to offer discounts which will put pressure on food prices downward canada's food industry is dominated by a small handful of powerful grocery giants but no strong evidence of profiteering has been proven whether the federal government can or should implement a grocery code of conduct is still being debated. However, food supply chain analyst Sylvain Charlebois says there is some grandstanding going on on both sides here, from both big government and big industry. Politicizing food prices or food inflation is not necessarily helping. I think it can get votes for politicians and it will probably please some critics. We don't see any evidence of profiteering, but Galen West and Loblaws are becoming a bit of a problem. Galen West and Loblaws are against the code to level the playing field. He's actually saying that the code could increase prices. I don't think that's an accurate statement. Reporting from Canada, I'm Dennis Guy. Case IH is nodding to its past while focusing on the future. Here's Chad Smith with the story. The 2024 tractor lineup delivers more purposeful design, technology, and performance. The lineup includes the company's most powerful tractor ever, the Steiger 715 Quad Track. Fran Rosenquist, a farmer from Atwater, Minnesota, saw the 715's power and speed with his own eyes. I was comparing it to the 620s pulling 60-foot field cultivators, 60-and-a-half-foot field cultivators, and at 26-and-a-half-foot rippers. It's amazing what that tractor will pull. I guess I can't believe how much horsepower that thing really puts to the ground, and it's just an awesome tractor. I can't stress that enough. If somebody gets a chance, they need to go drive one and then have an open mind about it. For me, because of the fact we're used to running 620s, I had a real good comparison because the 620 is a pretty awesome tractor and comparing it to that 715, it's a noticeable change. The Steiger 715 delivers built-in power and speed to cover a lot more ground in less time. Rosenquist says the 778 peak horsepower engine is also nimble enough to drive on any surface and improves traction 
addition to reduce soil compaction with its longer track design. It's faster going down the road, which I kind of liked, and it's smoother down the road. Well, the 620s aren't rough by any means, but I thought this one here was a little bit smoother on the road, and it's probably got to do with the fact that it's got a little bit longer wheelbase on it, or track base. The tracks were very smooth going down the road. I could tell the difference on the, from the 620s. The Steiger 715 comes with better visibility to improve the driving experience in and out of the field. He says the sight lines in the tractor are much improved. We run till at least midnight just about to get everything in and with the lights on that tractor, it's a dream running it at night. It really is. It's, it's really fun. I just like to watch what I'm doing and you can see out of this thing very easily and it's surprising with that big hood that's on there. You wouldn't think you could see as good as you can out the front, but it's amazing. A taper on that hood, you can see the ground really, really easy. To learn more about the Steiger 715, speak to your local dealership or visit Case IA. Chad Smith reporting. We are seeing drought coverage decline to start the new year. Rod Bain has more. Drought coverage continues to decrease on the net, per the latest U.S. drought monitor for the period ending January 2nd. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. When we started the month of December, we had 36% of the lower 48 states experiencing drought. That number has dropped modestly to 33% by the time we reach the first map of the 2024 year. Within the two highest drought categories, extreme and exceptional. We saw a drop from 8 to 6% during that same five-week period between November 28th and January 2nd. We also saw approximately a halving of the D4 category, exceptional drought, from just over 2% to just over 1%. Rippey says although the change overall in drought coverage shows improvement, there are still some areas of the nation recording deteriorating drought conditions. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. While it's not something we all want to think about, now is the time to make sure you have an estate plan in place for your farm or ranch. Director of Government and Public Affairs with the Ag Business Advisory Company, Pinion, Brian Keel says that's because of a tax law that will be phased out next year. You know, in 2017, Congress doubled the exemptions that can be claimed for, for estates. Um, so right now, you can protect a lot of your wealth from, from uh, inheritance taxes. If those provisions expire a year from now, your ability to protect that wealth goes down dramatically. And those provisions are set to expire next year unless Congress extends them. Keel says estate plans and trusts are governed by the existing law when they're created, and changes to the law afterward don't change the plan. So it's, it's important to take advantage of these provisions while they exist. He said the first step is to talk with your tax professional. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will return in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Susan Littlefield was in Tucson, Arizona for the Water Street Edge Conference. There she talked with speaker Jolene Brown, and that is today's featured interview. Sometimes family dynamics has an interesting curve to it, especially when you're in an agricultural operation. We're going to find out more details, kind of looking at those family discussions. Is it family? Is it business first? Is it a combination? I think with one of the esteemed experts in this industry. Hi, I'm Susan Littlefield. We are, of course, with Water Street at their EDGE conference taking place in Tucson, Arizona. And Jolene Brown joins us now. And I got to tell you, I have not seen a bunch of grown men cry 
like I did in that media or in that room today, but in a good way, because I think as you spoke and you speak from the heart with just a, with a sense of urgency, information, a touch of humor, but it really gets them thinking. And I saw a lot of heads nodding, a lot of eyes being wiped because you brought up some very important issues that we need to be thinking about now versus later, as you said, you know, before you get to the grave. You know, what you missed was the lady who kept elbowing her husband. I told you we should do that. I told you. He finally moved his chair over so he couldn't get. And, and you know, we sometimes the tears are of release and relief that they know that there's more than hope. There's help. There's things they can actually do to help them honor their families by doing the business right. You brought up such an interesting point when you talk about having that family discussion. Is it family or is it business first? Well, you know, I've been at this over three decades. And the way I find that you honor the family is by doing the business right. Our mindset lends to everything for the family and we become family first. We don't want to rock the boat or get anybody mad. We hope things are going to be okay. And so you are continuing on a habit, assumption, a hope, and a tradition. And sometimes that does work out. I call that lucky. But what I taught them today is that to become a business first family does not say the business is more important than the family. It does not demean the family. But it says, we love and honor you so much. Let's get this work done. And then so not be overwhelmed. We always have to start where there's their point of pain. So there were a lot of triggers today. And you never know who's going to go, oh, my gosh, she's been sleeping under my bed. And so as so one lady said to me, you've been under my bed. You heard everything that we're thinking about. I said, so we need to do more than thinking because harboring this inside of you leads to one of the biggest things that breaks up families and business, and that is silence. Silence is the greatest destroyer of family and business. Therefore, we're looking for transparency. We're looking for things that are legal. We're looking for things that make money sense. But it cannot just be inside and only one person know about it or nobody knows about it because everybody else then is on the limb. They don't know what's going to happen. Is it going to be cut off? Am I going to be able to have fruit that multiplies here? And so we have to watch out for silence. That is one of the biggest destroyers. I think bringing a family member into the family agricultural operation because their family sometimes isn't the best recipe for success. Oh, heaven's sakes, no. <laughs> just because you were born and raised together doesn't mean you can and should be working together. And as I just visited with somebody, uh, he had to fire all of his family members he brought in because he brought in family. He didn't bring in key employees needed by the business who knew their job, who were kind and courteous and respectful, and who exceeded expectations. He brought in people because they're family and they were not a good fit. So what I'm after is, so what do we do to make sure we have a good fit before we walk that? Because it's very hard to fire a family member. We tolerate things from family members we would never tolerate from any other employee. And that just reduces the standard. I had a, a wonderful catfish farmer down in Mississippi. And I was talking about showing up on time. You know, your employees. And he came up to me later and says, you know, my boys, he's a slow starter. He doesn't get there very early in the morning. And I said, so what time does he show up? Oh, 9, 9, 15, 10 o'clock. I said, what time do the employees have to be at work? He said, we start at 7 o'clock. I said, you do know what happens between 7 a.m. and 10 a.m.? Resistance, resentment, and revenge. And people always perform to the lowest standard you tolerate. So I had to do some coaching with him because he had to act, act as a leader manager, not as the dad who just is allowing his boy to do whatever he wanted. You had a great triangle that you shared with everybody. And of course, I had to draw it because it talks about labor, management, leadership, and how we end up labor once again. And, and But you made such a key point because the gentleman sitting next to me goes, oh my gosh, I get it. I have to be a mentor. Yes, I'm doing labor, but I'm a mentor to my family. Oh my gosh, we need 
the senior generations who are transitioning the labor and the management and the leadership to the next generation. They need somebody who's ridden the roller coaster. I call that grit. We have to have people with grit who have persevered for the hard time, who have still succeeded, who have had to hang on by fingernails and sometimes lost everything and started over again. But the lessons they can teach us so we don't have to make those same journey is only shared by those who have really walked it. And one of the things I love doing, there's a bank in North Dakota that does a young leader conference, and this happens to be uh, a great financial meeting. They always bring in people who were loan officers during the 80s who were met with guns on the table because they had to go through bankruptcy or foreclosure. And yet we have people out there who never even thinks that, well, that's not a problem. We just go to the bank. We just talk. They'll give us money, and we'll be fine. They have no idea of what it really takes to pay things off, to ride that roller coaster. Those who have done it, those who have grit. And here's the challenge. The enemy of grit is ease. And sometimes we, the senior generation, have made it way too easy. We don't want them to make a mistake. We don't want them to fail. And they have never developed any fortitude, any grit. And so we have to make sure that we have that wise mentor. It starts at the bottom with labor. And then you move up to management. So what do you do well? What can you be in charge of? And then you do that well. You do another thing well. And before you know it, you're leading, reporting to owners. But at the pinnacle of our career senior generation, we need to become labor again. We've worked so hard. We said to somebody, come, come on board, labor, labor, labor. Follow me. Oh, you do that well, management, management. And finally, I get to follow you. We have to teach people how to learn how to lead and how to learn how to leave. We will continue with Susan Littlefield and Jolene Brown right after this. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. We continue now with our featured interview, Susan Littlefield speaking with Jolene Brown from the Water Street Edge Conference in Tucson, Arizona. One of the other things I thought, and I know that there's an area farmer who listens to us who will say, yep, I did that. When his kid said, Dad, I've graduated college, I want to come home and farm with you. Dad said, nope, you need to go get a job somewhere else. Come back to me in a couple years so you know what it's like to work for somebody other than family. Well, you learn about 30 lessons when you have a non-family boss, like showing up on time. Uh, you know what your job is, which is really great. You know what not to be like. You learn how to work with people you don't even like. You learn you get paid. You learn you get a vacation. Well, there's 30 lessons that you learn, and parents aren't the best teachers because it's all habit and assumption. And as one senior generation said to me, he should know how to do it. He grew up here on the farm. I said, so what is it he doesn't know how to do? How is he going to learn how to do it? Because what you learned through those years is not what you're doing now on the farm. Thank you. How important is it in an in a operation, a family operation, with non-family employees and family employees to use those simple two words? Words are you referring to? Thank you. Oh, the gratitude. Yeah. It's the lowest cost, highest return. I had a father who said to me, as I said to him, I love you. He said, I know it. Never said it back. I would have done anything to have it do it. And yet I realized that's not that man. I can still love that man, and I can't expect something he's not willing to give. I'm telling these people today, if you choose to become interdependent, where's your gratitude? The fact that the senior generation could say, oh, my God, I, this technology, you do it. I can't figure it out. Never would we have expanded or learned how to run this equipment or kept up with the markets. You do all that. This farm has grown so much because of you. I'm so grateful. Thank you. And how long has it been since a younger generation said, you know, had you and Grandpa not given me the chance to come back, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have a chance to do what I love to do. I'm so grateful. I got a lot to learn. I'm going to screw things up. But would you walk alongside me? I really need you. I'm so grateful for you. Those words, what did that take? A minute? A minute and a half? But what that does to the heart gives the fortitude for motivation 
It will increase your productivity, your profitability, your peace of mind, so we can all sit together happily at a holiday table. That's my mission. Very well put. Tell me, what's what's the biggest mistake, mistake we do when it comes to, well, I have an estate plan or I've got a will written out. I did it 20 years ago, but all is good. You said 20 years ago. So they need something legal. They need it revised. They need it in writing, and it needs to be transparent and shared. But even those documents have to be updated. Things change along the way. It's so important to say, if something happened to me today, what happens right now? And one of the women I visited with here, I need to talk with her more, because if something happened to her husband right now, she has no security at all. Uh, she's a second wife. Everything was done before this second marriage, and she's been married now for 20 years. Nothing changed from the first will. It was ironic. I also had a man who passed away, and he hadn't changed his will, and everything went to his ex-wife. <laughs> he forgot to take her off as a beneficiary of her policies. So the, the gratitude needs to come in. The celebration, being so grateful for what you have and the opportunity to pass it on with the right people doing the right thing. You also mentioned choose your hard. Kind of explain that to our listeners. Well, he said choose what's hard and to get done. I'm saying the heart is a big motivator. You have to connect that to the spine and the brain because the heart tells you something you need to do or should do or want to do or appreciate, but it is the actions and the documents that follow up the heart that actually make those things come to fruition. One final question for you. What do you like about what you do on a daily basis and all these farmers and ranchers that you have conversations with? Well, when you stepped out for a minute, I was in here praying. It was a praying of gratitude for these wonderful people who are on a journey, who work so hard to get with where they're at. And maybe today they got one insight, one piece of information that will make what they do more solid. So why do I do what I do? I love the people with whom I work. And I've been given a special gift as a professional speaker to bring humor and hope and helpful ideas. And that's why I do what I do. Jolene Brown joining us here in Tucson. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. To me, because I can go back and put that in there. If somebody wants to have more information, have that conversation to get the conversation started with their family. Jolene, how do they go about reaching you and following what you're doing? Well, I am a professional speaker, so I might be in your area. I'm in many parts across North America. I'm also a family business consultant, but I'm not a coach. I don't hold your hand. I don't come for show. We do a whole lot of work before I'm there to make sure that when I'm there, the work gets done. So they can reach me at Jolene, J-O-L-E-N-E, at JoleneBrown.com. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at AgnetWest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at AgnetWest on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.